James chapter 4, verse number 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We ask Heavenly Father that we might find victory in our lives. We are very defeatable people. We pray that you strengthen us and use us for your glory. Honor yourself in us as we endeavor to put into practice the things that your word teaches us about this battle in which we live. Use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The other day I was sitting at my desk, taking a break from my studies, when all of a sudden I felt sorry for myself. You heard me correctly. I started feeling pity for myself. Yes, your pastor is a sinner like everybody else. I'm no different as far as that goes. There was no lust or envy involved as far as I could see, no jealousy. I might be wrong, but I, don't I didn't detect any pride in it. I was certainly not proud of the fact that I was uh, feeling sorry for myself. I just began to feel sorry for myself. After a few minutes of self-pity, far too many minutes of self-pity, I asked myself, from where did this come? What brought this on? Sure, my wicked flesh was a part of it. But you know, the flesh is there all the time. Why just now am I feeling this way? When the same, I woke up with that same flesh this morning. What, what brought it on? Why now? What prompted my sinful flesh all of a sudden to go somewhere that it doesn't usually go? Why did this sin rear up its ugly head at this point? As I tried to analyze the situation, praying about it, I reached the conclusion that I was in some sort of spiritual struggle. I just spent a, a couple of hours preparing and working on the message that I preached this morning. And I was just taking a, a break from that, drinking a cup, of, a cup of tea, and all of a sudden, there that was. It occurred to me that one of the devil's servants might have initiated this attack upon me. The Bible tells us that Satan is not pleased with Christian efforts at evangelism and spiritual growth and service. And he will do his best to keep us from serving the Lord as we should. And if the preacher can be thrown off track, if his spirit can be pushed down into his flesh, then he might not be receptive to the leadership of the Spirit for the next little while, and it may have an effect on the, the message that's preached to the next Lord's Day. To give my story a happy ending, the Lord blessed, and by the time I'd finished preparing, I believed that God was once again in control of things. Then, later, I was praying about a message for this evening, and the Spirit suggested to me that, you know, you're probably not alone. It could be that other people experience this same sort of thing that you have endured the last little while. 
there are likely moments in your lives when you are self-piteous, unjustly angry, envious of that other guy. Maybe it's just worried. It occurred to me that you might benefit from hearing me confess my sins and talk about ways in which uh, uh, we can come out of this malaise or sin or whatever you want to call it. Perhaps we can both benefit if together we come up out of those sins to the glory of our Lord and Savior. So now you know what prompted the lesson for this evening. Looking back on the notes that I had prepared for this lesson, they looked like a lesson on Satan and his wiles. Messages that I've preached before, lessons that you have heard before. It looked pretty bland, looked pretty plain. This won't be much more than a reminder of things which I hope that you have already heard. But to make our approach somewhat different, I decided I'm going to start in the middle of the message. When I get finished with the middle, then I'll go back to the beginning and uh, bring it to a conclusion. Does that make any sense? Maybe not now, but it might here in a few minutes. Hoping that you know that the Bible teaches the existence of Satan, let me share something that perhaps you haven't considered before because, you know, I didn't consider it before now. Well, maybe there's a, a, something new for us all. Our sinful flesh, as Christians, may not be as flammable as we have been generally taught to believe. For example, our mamas and our Sunday school teachers, years ago, have instilled in us the rudiments of good morals. Good morals. Of course, we're all very different, and so my weakness may not be your weakness, and so on and so forth, but generally, we know that lying is not good. Stealing is a sin. We know that we shouldn't lust after things, after people. We know that anger can be dangerous. So we learn, generally speaking, to keep such things under control. I do not steal anymore told you that I have as a child. Uh, I try not to lie. I, I try to keep these things under control. I try not to be envious, etc., etc. But then, why do we sometimes get so proud? Why is it that every once in a while we get full of ourselves? Why is it that today I'm very envious uh, or I'm not envious of the guy with the Tesla whose car breaks down on the way to the way to church. <laughs> Paul said in Romans 7, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, this is what he said, I know that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would not, that I do. And the... the the evil which I would not, excuse me, the good that I would, I do not. The evil which I would not, I do. 
Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in my flesh. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. And then later, in Ephesians 6, he said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. We wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. And he might have said, and inward places as well. You might smile at this, but I have come to think that my little pity party was a fire in my flesh, ignited and then stirred by satanic influence in order to disrupt my service for the Lord. The devil wanted to disturb my preparations for the Lord's day, and he tried to use my flesh to do it. Consider, consider this illustration. The Bible tells us there is coming a day when Satan will have no longer any influence on humanity. Just turn to, to Revelation chapter 20. We'll just read some of this. There will be a day coming when Satan is incarcerated. Revelation 20 verse number 1. I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on, that, on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled and after that he must be loosed a little season." The upcoming millennium will be as blessed, if not even more blessed, than life in the Garden of Eden before sin came along. It will be marvelous. It will be a day when the wolf and the lamb shall feed together and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. The dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, saith the Lord. Isaiah 65, 25. During that thousand-year period, very likely millions, perhaps even billions of people will be born. Those people and the world in general will be saturated with the gospel. They will know the Lord firsthand. They will have seen him. They will have heard his voice. But not every one of them will be genuine children of God. Even in the most ideal circumstances, the lost will remain lost until the Holy Spirit regenerates them. So we have these people being born during millennium. I know that there will be lost people during the millennium because of what takes place at the conclusion. During those 10 centuries, without satanic influence and with messianic control, life will be essentially bliss. But then we come to verse number 7. 
And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations. What will Satan do? Among other things, he will ignite the flesh of those unregenerated people. Human flesh, which didn't have the devil teasing and tempting it for many, many years, will often stay relatively quiet. But when Satan is released, going about his evil business, once again, there will be outward rebellion against God. What I'm trying to point out is that the flesh, as fallen and as corrupt as it is, will often lie dormant and placid until some satanic influence comes along to get it excited, to stir it up. And that is as true in the saved person today as it will be in the lost person during the millennium. Our spiritual enemy, our great spiritual enemy, knows our every weakness, and he knows which evil buttons to push in our flesh to get us going. So we sin, and perhaps we feel sorry for ourselves. Not simply because we live in the flesh, but because that flesh has been set on fire by God's great enemy, who is our great enemy. Now going back to the beginning of the message, notice that there are two spiritual beings before us in this verse. James says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. Obviously, the Lord is a spiritual being, a spirit being. He does not have flesh and bones, as we do. So also is the devil, a spirit being. And, by the way, just as much as one exists, the other exists. There is a God in heaven, there is a satanic being against him. Satan is as real as Jehovah. But we cannot see either one of them unless they wish to reveal themselves to us in some fashion. We cannot touch them with our fingers. We cannot touch them with our ears or our eyes unless they desire for us to do so. Therefore, it is very important to submit to God and there's the importance of resisting the devil. The exhortation to submit to one and resist the other is based on the different character of each. One is truth, love, and purity. The other is falsehood, hatred, murder, and filth. It makes sense to resist the evil. It makes sense to submit to the righteous, the good. If you go into the backyard and both a butterfly and a wasp start flying around your head, this is for all of you except Mara, and uh, you, you might permit the butterfly to land on you, but not the wasp, because they're different kinds of creatures. We don't want that wasp wasp sitting on us. 
They're different characters. Submit yourselves therefore unto God. Resist the devil. But it's not just about the nature of God and the devil. We're to submit to one and resist the other because of relationships as well. One of the two is our creator. He is the one who upholds the world by the word of his power. The other is a creature that has chosen to rebel against the Lord. As Christians, one of these spirits is our friend and always has been. But the other is our adversary and always has been. One of them is our advocate, the other is our accuser. One defends us before the law while the other wants to prosecute us according to the full weight of the law. One is our redeemer, the other is our slave master. One is a life giver, but the, one of the names of the other is destroyer. As Christians, we have contact with both. What should we do? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the other one. Resist Satan. Considering the one we are to resist, notice his names and titles. Our scripture tells us to resist the devil. It might surprise you to know that the term devil is not found in the Old Testament. It's a New Testament word. The literal meaning of the word is slanderer. Another term which the Bible employs to describe our arch enemy is Satan. The term is used 49 times, 11 of those being in the first two chapters of Job, and then most of the rest of them are in the New Testament. Its first use, first time we hear the word Satan, it is used as describing the one who tempted David, tempted David to number the children of Israel. Satan did that. And that got the nation into serious trouble. David into serious trouble. And then you're familiar with Satan's attempt to destroy Job and his testimony. It's the Lord Jesus who uses the name Satan more than anyone else. There must be some significance in that, but I don't know what it is. In both major languages of the Bible, Satan means adversary. I believe that Jehovah has a major enemy, an adversary, who is constantly working, trying to destroy the Lord's authority. Satan was the adversary of Christ, pulling the strings of those puppets of his, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans. I believe that Satan is still the adversary of the Lord, and that makes him an adversary of the people of the Lord, the child of God. He wants us to sin in whatever way he can get us to sin. He opposes every attempt we make to grow in Christ and to serve the Lord. He is a Christian's adversary. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I'm just throwing out some material perhaps. Perhaps you haven't considered this. Beelzebub, one of the names of the devil. The Pharisees said of the Lord Jesus, 
Christ casts out devils by the prince of the devils, Beelzebub. What they said about Christ was about as disgusting and blasphemous as anything they might have ever said about Jesus. Who is Beelzebub? He's one of the gods of the Ekronites, either Philistines or Canaanites. The word Beelzebub signifies Baal, master, and fly, the lord of the flies. The Canaanite idol may have been in the form of a fly. There is some speculation that this was developed because so many flies accumulated around the altars of those false gods. Over time, the Jews associated Beelzebub with the dunghill because so many flies were found there. And for the Pharisees to come and call Christ the Beelzebub, or the Lord of the flies, was horrible. Just awful. Another pair of names are given to Satan in Revelation 9. As the chapter begins, the fifth angel blows his trumpet in the bottomless pit. The abyss opens up, outpours smoke and stench along with scorpion locusts carrying power to torment the people of the earth. And in those days, multitudes of people will yearn for death but not find it. After the scorpion beasts are described in a little more detail, verse number, verse number 11 says, And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath this name Apollyon. Abaddon and Apollyon both refer to destruction, to the destroyer. Satan is in the destruction business. I believe that the current state of our society is being manipulated by satanic influences. Amen. The devil's involved here. He's a destroyer. The devil's interest is not confined to simply weak or wicked, immoral people. He'd love to destroy anything and everything, including those who want to serve the Lord. Destroyer. There are many other names and titles applied to Satan. Some of them are descriptions. Belial, for example, may be a name for Satan, but it may only be a description. There are wicked and worthless people in the Bible who are called sons of Belial. The word refers to worthlessness. Paul exhorts us, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of God, the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I've already said that Satan is an accuser. He would love to be a prosecuting attorney against us. Revelation 12. 
I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. He is our adversary. He is our accuser. So, be sober. Be vigilant. Your adversary is a roaring lion walked about seeking whom he may devour. Resist. Stand fast. Steadfast in the faith. Satan is described as the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of darkness. The Lord uses some of these terms. The apostles use some of these terms. I could go on and on. He is the tempter. Paul warned the people of Philippi against the work of the tempter. Matthew referred to Satan when he wrote, And when the tempter came to Christ... He said, if thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. He is a tempter. He wants us to sin, as I've said. One more designation. He is the wicked one. The Lord Jesus introduced this term. but It was used more commonly by the Apostle John. Satan is the wicked one. When someone sins, when I sin, I am reflecting on the wicked one. I'm, I'm casting a shadow over the righteous one. I'm identifying to some degree with uh, the Lord's great enemy, Satan. When the Christian sins against his Lord, when he brings shame against the Savior, by his actions he associates with Satan. Anything wicked belongs to him. Not to the Lord. Therefore, submit yourselves unto the Lord. Unto God. Resist the devil. The devil would love to tempt you into some heinous sin. Oh, but you're too strong for that. So he'll just pick on some little thing. Pride. Pity. Self-pity. Whatever. Against Satan, in each of these forms... We are exhorted to resist. But how do we resist against the devil? That is the question. The Bible gives us some exhortations, some pointers. There will be no victorious resistance unless the biblical rules are applied. No crucifix around the neck is going to keep Satan at bay. We've got to use the Lord's rules here. First, it goes without saying, James, who gives us our opening scripture, was writing to Christians, people of God. No one has any hope of successfully resisting Satan if they are the property of Satan, if they are members of his family. But in contrast to them, 1 John 5.18 tells us, Whosoever is born of God, the wicked one toucheth him not. As people indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the devil has no claim on us and has no power over us unless we do not resist. We fall into his hands. We always have the potential of victorious resisting because we are children of God. Victory is available. 
Then James says, as Christians, submit yourselves unto God. That in itself is resisting Satan. To come within the range of God's light is to dispense, or dispel I should say, the satanic darkness. When there are two opposing forces claiming our attention, to turn to one is to leave the other. In submitting to God as Lord and King over our hearts and lives, we resist the devil in ways that no other kind of resistance what's the word? Accomplishes anything. I don't know if that's a good sentence or not. Self-pity should vanish when we meditate on the great things that the Lord has done for us. Why should I feel sorry for myself when I consider all the things that the Lord has promised to bless me with? Why should we feel sorry for ourselves when we look into the scarred face of our Savior and the wounded hands of our Lord? My next suggestion is mentioned with a, a bit of hesitation. I don't want to sound charismatic or Catholic or hypochondriac. In Luke 10.17, Jesus' disciples returned after a successful preaching mission. They had great joy in saying, Lord, even the devils are subject to us through thy name. The name of the anointed Lord Jesus. There's no name which causes the devil to fear but the name of Christ Jesus. And it's not simply that the utterance of Jesus' name takes his breath away. It's the authority which lies behind that name. Never separate the name of Christ from the the authority of the person. It was in the authority of Christ that Satan's demons trembled at the work of the uh, disciples and the 70. In Acts 19, there were some Jewish exorcists. They were Jews, not Christians, trying to cast out demons by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. On one occasion, the indwelling evil spirit retorted, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? Who are you? That demon had no fear of those men because they were not working with the authority of Christ. Even though they might have been using Jesus' name, there's nothing in that. That's like wearing a crucifix. No power there. They knew who Paul was. But who are you? Who is David Oldfield? Nobody. I can tell you who I am. I'm a nobody, but I am a nobody that belongs to Christ. Aren't you wrapped in Jesus' righteousness, Christ's righteousness? And aren't we in such a position as we surrender to the Lord where we can accomplish great things in His name? In His name, not using His name. In His name. The devils have no power against the authority of the Son of God. 
How can we resist the devil? We can do so by the Word of God. In the classic example of satanic temptation, I mean the example other than the very first one, Satan came to Christ and said, I want you to do this. Try this. Why don't you do this? It's important to see that the Lord Jesus did not use His authority to defeat Satan that day. Though He certainly could have. And he didn't start out calling his name as though it was some sort of mantra or charismatic talisman. Now, the Lord Jesus used something that's available to us all. He simply quoted the Word of God. Yes, quoted the Bible. Amen. It is written. It is written. Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written. He took the sword of the Spirit and our Lord Jesus started swinging it. And every time, it slashed into the heart of Satan. 1 John 5.18 tells us, when it comes to spiritual attack, we are to keep ourselves. What does that mean? The thought is this. None of us can surrender ourselves to someone or something if we have already given our allegiance to the Lord. Satan cannot take my heart. It belongs to Christ. I can't even give it away. Even if I tried, uh, it wouldn't work. We are tenants dwelling in the Lord's property. This flesh does not belong to Satan. This flesh... I'm forced to live here for a while, but it belongs to the Lord and He's going to glorify it one of these days. Satan, you've got no business touching my flesh. Tempting me this way. Christians, although they cannot be indwelt by Satan, they can be led around. They can be pushed around, but it does not have to be. We can keep ourselves by submitting ourselves unto the Lord. Then 1 Peter 5.8 reminds us to put sentries on either sides of our hearts because we are temporarily passing through dangerous territory. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary is a roaring lion walked about seeking whom he may devour. The guide to that African safari takes his uh, uh, tourists and their cameras out into the lion-infested savanna and they set up their camp and they put up those blazing fires all around their camp and maybe a century or two and no lions getting in there. None. None. Finally, we're told to put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 17. Should I read it? You're familiar with it. I'll conclude with an old hymn. That Texas Baptists used to sing. I wish that I knew the music to it. I ran into it the other day. My soul, be on guard. Ten thousand foes arise. The hosts of sin are pressing hard to draw thee from the skies. Oh, watch and fight and pray. The battle ne'er give o'er. Renew it boldly every day. And help divine implore. Ne'er think the victory won, nor lay thine armor down. 
The work of faith will not be done till thou obtain thy golden crown. I know from experience how hard it is to constantly implement the Lord's instructions for this battle. We get tired. We get distracted. We get involved in the Lord's work and don't pay attention. I'm a sinner like everybody else. But for Christ's glory, these are things which we, which I need to consider and implement. Again, for the Lord's glory. Please stand.